Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. This is show number 26. I have two fantastic stories for you, one of which is the final part of the story started last week. So, sit back, relax, let's listen to some stories. First up, as mentioned, we have the second part of The Master Miller's Tale by Ian R. MacLeod. Ian has been selling and writing professionally for more than 20 years. His critically acclaimed novels have been widely translated, whilst his short stories have been reprinted in many best-of anthologies. He lives with two dogs and one wife in the river town of Butley, and you can learn more by following the link on our Triple F website. It's read for you by Colin Clues. Colin is a musician and writer living in the UK. He loves music, reading and movies. Although he is British, he grew up in Africa and still hasn't managed to do anything cooler than that, despite studying philosophy and learning to play electric guitar. And so, here is part two of The Master Miller's Tale by Ian R. MacLeod. The heat finally relented in peals of thunder. Huge skies hurried over Lincolnshire, and what grain there was that year, poor stuff, flattened and wettened, was finally borne up Burlish Hill's puddled track for grinding. If the miller up there seemed even brisker and grumpier in his dealings than he had before, it got little mention, for all the talk was of what was happening down at the big hall. When storms finally blew themselves out, there came at last a day of surprising warmth, the last echo of the summer cast across the stark horizons of autumn. Sheer luck, although the villagers agreed that the wedding breakfast to which they'd all been invited could scarcely have been bettered. From the few glimpses they'd had of the bride with her flaming hair and pearl-beaded dress, everyone agreed that she made the finest imaginable sight as well. Pity the same couldn't be said of the groom, who looked dried up and old enough to make you shudder at the very thought of him and her. 
Not that much of that was likely, it was agreed, as the wine and beer flowed. Still less a child. Lights were lit as dusk unfurled. A great machine with a greedy furnace and tooting pipes was set chuffing in the middle of the lawns. It gave out steam and smoke and music, and soon everyone began to dance. Amid all these distractions, few would have bothered to look towards Burlish Hill. Still fewer would have noticed that the sails of the mill still turned. That winter was a hard one. The land whitened and froze, then rang with the iron wheels of the many carts which headed through the gates of Stagsby Hall to scrawl their marks across the ruined lawns. With the thaw came much work, as villagers bent their backs to the digging of what seemed like an endlessly complex trench. Sconces and braziers burned as the work continued long into the nights, and the grandmistress herself was often present, offering the sorts of smiles and encouragements for which the men were greedy, although few yet comprehended exactly what the work was for. Still they agreed as they sat afterwards in the snug and drank their way through the extra money, that it might help put Stagsby on the map. It would never have occurred to them that Stagsby had proclaimed itself across all Lincolnshire for centuries by the windmill-topped Burlish Hill. The huge new contrivance itself, part machine, part factory, looked wholly alien as it squatted amid the spring mud at the brown edges of the filthy lake. The opening of it was cause for yet another party at the hall. People were getting blasé about these occasions by now. They commented on the varieties of cake and beer with the air of connoisseurs, and were cheerfully unsurprised when the first turning of the great camwheel failed to occur. Nevertheless, the Grand Mistress gave a speech up on the podium, and both she and it were more than pretty enough. Looking down from Burlish Hill, through that long winter, and into the spring which followed, Nathan absorbed tales and rumours along with the scent of coal smoke which now drifted on the air. Light shone now often from the windows of Stagsby Hall, but they were nothing compared to the flame and blaze which glowed beside it, on still days he heard shouts in odd accents, the toots of whistles, the grumpy huff and turn of a huge and awkward machine, the call of strange spells. The first summer of his new competition, though, went well. Nathan aimed to be as reliable and competitive as ever, in fact more so. He cut into his savings, reduced his rates, and the crop that year was as good as the previous one had been bad. There was more than enough grist to keep him working night and day and the winds mostly came when he needed them. Meanwhile, all the machine down in the valley seemed capable of delivering was broken deadlines. If the local farmers took a little of their trade to the new grandmistress, it was more out of curiosity to see the great steam beast at work, and because of her looks, rather than because of the quality of the service she offered. Knowing something of farmers and their nature, Nathan didn't doubt that the novelty would fade. And he was a miller, and there had always been a mill up on Burlish Hill. He was prepared to trust the winds and the seasons, and be patient. Nathan was also sanguine about the other changes he noticed in the world. He'd understood long before Grand Mistress Smith had laid it out before him on that clever map that one of the main reasons for his success as a miller was the improvement in the haulage and communication which the spread of the new steam railways had brought. When a line finally reached as far as the Lincolnshire coast, he was happy to use it to visit his mother at Donanook. It saved several hours, and meant he no longer sacrificed an entire day's work. On summer's mornings, the cramped and chattering carriages drawn by those odd new machines were filled with families from the big cities heading for a day out at new resorts. He sometimes even stopped himself for a stroll along the promenade, although to him the Lincolnshire coast remained essentially a wintry place. 
This, he thought, on a freezing, blustery day when the gaudy new buildings were shuttered and sand gritted the streets, is real weather, brisk and cold and sharp. The tracks now also ran to the town markets where the steam and screech of the whistles added to the traditional stink and chaos of the cattle pens, the clamouring basket of geese and chickens, the shouting and the pipe smoke. There were new animals now as well, horses which were too broad and strong and stupid to be called horses, and frighteningly fancy ducks and hens. In this new age of new magic, there were also strange new trades. Still the tall rooms in which the auctions of grain took place remained places of golden, if bustling, calm. The mass of grain itself was stored in barns or warehouses. All there was here were wicker baskets containing samples, which you could thumbnail the husks off to taste the soft white meat inside. Nathan enjoyed the whole day and the entire process. He would, he sometimes reflected, have come to these auctions even if he didn't trade himself. He even enjoyed the conversations which were invariably about the air, the earth and the crops. Market day, that September in Luth, was as busy as ever, and the roar of voices and the jostle of shoulders was entirely familiar. Standing towards the back, Nathan was tall enough to see over the caps and heads of the factors and farmers, and still had a voice which the older millers who clustered at the front had lost. Then, as the bidding commenced, he noticed a shift in the usual ebb and flow. There was a surprising swirl of attention near to the auctioneer's desk, and it was centred around a solitary head of flaming red hair. It was the same at the next auction, and the one after that. Against all tradition, Grand Mistress Fiona Smith, a woman, and no member of any of the recognised agricultural guilds, was bidding on her own behalf. Not only that, but she was far better at getting the auctioneer's attention than anyone else in the room. Worse still, the masculine reserve of these country guildsmen meant that they withdrew from bidding against her at prices which were far too low. Essentially, she was getting her grain on the cheap because of how she looked. Nathan was shocked to discover that seemingly sensible men could act like such fools. If a batch of corn or oats was selling at a price he knew to be ridiculous, he made sure he made a better bid. Sometimes he pushed things too high, and the red head which absorbed so much of the hall's attention would give a negative shake. Still, grain was grain, and he had the stuff stored at his own expense until he found the time and energy to have it delivered and ground. He'd always thought of himself as hard-working, but in that season, and the ones which followed, he surprised even himself. The mill turned as it had never turned, and there was always something more which needed to be done, and even a decent wind wasn't always enough for him. On days where there was a moderate easterly or a keen breeze from the south, Nathan still found himself looking up in frustration at the slow turn of his milled sails, finding a wind hanging hooked in his lean-to which made a close enough match to the one which was already blowing was an entirely new skill, although it was one he did his best to learn. Sometimes, on the right days, the whole mill span and thrummed with a speed and vigour which he'd never witnessed. It was thrilling and the needs of the many mechanisms dragged the songs from his throat until he was exhausted and hoarse. On other days, though, the winds fought angrily, and the mill's beams creaked, and its bearings strained, and its sails gave aching moans. Such strains inevitably increased the wear on the mill's components, and the costs and demands of its maintenance soared. 
On cold winter nights, when there was now still grain in need of grinding, or flour which somehow had to be dried off before it could be sold, he dragged himself to the desk with its books of spells and accounts at which his father and many other generations of Westovers had sat. But the nib trembled, his lungs hurt, and the red and green figures could no longer be persuaded to add up. He'd once never have thought of leaving any job half completed, but now he staggered off to snatch a few hours' sleep with the coloured ink still warring. Then he dreamed of storms of figures, or that the mill was a storm itself, and that the air would never again stir across all of Lincolnshire if he didn't work its sails. Nathan had got little enough in reply on the rare occasions when he'd mentioned the wind-seller to his fellow millers. Did that man come to them on the same still, hot days in which he always seemed to visit Nathan? That hardly seemed possible. Was there just one wind-seller, or were there several of their species or guild? And where exactly did he come from? And what essential substance was it, after all, from which his winds were made? A flat, hot day. The mill groaning and creaking, and Nathan's bones filled with an ache for the time, it seemed only moments ago, when there was always too much grain, and never enough hours in the day to grind it. This summer, though, he'd had to rein in his bidding in order to keep up his repayment to the bank, whilst the carts had borne their grain less regularly and in smaller amounts up Burlish Hill. The farmers never looked Nathan directly in the eye or told him what they were doing, but the evidence was down there in the valley, in a pounding haze of noise and heat. Could people really work in such conditions, when the day itself was already like a furnace? Nathan wiped his face. He hawked and coughed and spat, and worked the bloody phlegm into the dry ground of Burlish Hill with the heel of his boot. Only last week in Gainsborough he had been having a bite of lunch at one of the inns beside the market, before taking the train which now reached Burwell, only five minutes off Stagsby itself. His bread roll had tasted gritty and sulphurous. He'd spat it out. A distant engine chuffed across the landscape, trailing its scarf of steam. Somewhere a whistle blew. Nathan coughed. No grist in need of grinding, but he still had half a mind to unlock the lean-to and take out whatever winds he had left in there, just for the ease they brought to his breathing and the cool feel of them twisting in his arms. A grey shimmer was emerging from the valley, and it was too stooped and solitary a figure for his heart to begin to race. Nathan remembered his fear and excitement in the times when his father had been master of this mill, and every spell had been new, every wind fresh and young. Still, it was good to think that some things didn't change, and he almost smiled at the wind-seller, almost wished him a cheery good day. The man flapped his old cloak. He seemed to give a shiver as he studied the hot, dry horizons. The hardest of all seasons, eh? Nathan shrugged. Almost every farmer said something similar to him when they came up here. It was usually a prelude to their explaining how they couldn't afford his normal rate, and it was scarcely in his interest to agree with them. But Nathan found himself nodding. This really was the hardest of all seasons. I have a hundred remedies. The wind-seller unshouldered his sack, and there they all were beneath, a knotted multitude of rags, but such beautiful things, especially on a day such as this. Storms and airs and breezes hazed around them in a thousand hurrying tints of blue and black and grey. Nathan knew how to drive a bargain, and the elder knew he wasn't in a position for extravagances, but he couldn't help feeling stirred, drawn, excited. 
Was it his own wheezing breath, or that of the mill which gave off that needy groan? Nathan barely heard the wind-seller's patter about his products. He of all people didn't need to be told about the poetry of the skies. He lifted a tarred and bunched handful of a northerly rope that wasn't from the north at all, and felt the bitter bliss of it swirling around him. Then the soft twine of a southwesterly blown in from far beyond every southwesterly horizon. Its breath in his face was the laughing warmth of a kiss. He bore them all, great stirring armfuls of them, into his stone lean-to, and hooked them up on their iron hangers, where they stirred and lifted with a need to be let loose. It was sweet work, delicious work, to hold and be taken hold of by this knotted blizzard of winds, and Nathan found he no longer cared how many he really needed, nor what he could afford. By the time he'd finished there was nothing left beyond the sack itself, and... Had the wind-seller offered it to him, he'd have taken that as well. Nathan was sweating, gasping. He was possessed by hot spasms, shivers of cold. How much had he actually paid for this glut? He couldn't recall. Neither did he particularly care. But as the wind-seller whistled through thin lips and laid the empty thing of rag across his back, Nathan felt that today he was owed something more. Tell me, wind-seller, he asked although he knew such questions should never be asked outside those who belonged to a certain trade or guild. Exactly how is it that your winds were made? It was your father I used to deal with, wasn't it? The man's cold gaze barely shifted, but it took in all of Nathan, his mill and his hill. Although you and he might well be the same. Same mill, same man, same sacrifices, eh? But it's always slightly behind you, isn't it? I mean the best of all days. The keenest of winds, the sweetest of grain. It's never quite where you're standing now. And the longer you work, the more you give up, the more time hurries by, the more it seems that the strongest breeze, the whitest clouds, always came yesterday or the day before. You're saying your winds are taken from the past? Twisting his neck, the wind-seller gave a shake of his head. Time was there were no sails up here, no millstone. No miller either. But the wind still came, and the sun rose and fell. Back then people saw things clearer. You, miller, you've merely given up sweat and years and the good state of your lungs to keep this mill turning. But for those people it was the seasons and then the sun itself which had to be turned. The wind-seller laughed. It was a harsh sound. Imagine the blood that was let, the sacrifices they made to ensure that spring arrived, that the next dawn came. But the past is gone, Miller, used up. It's as dry and dead as this ground, which has been seeped of all its magic. What we're left with is the husks of our memories, just like this sky and this land. Nathan watched the wind-seller shape sink down into the valley's haze. Might as well, he reflected, have tried talking to the winds themselves. Conversation after the markets in Lincolnshire bars always came free and loud. Nathan had never been one to seek out companionship, but now he found that there was some consolation to be had in sharing a glass or two and then a few complaints after another pointless day at the auctions. Grandmistress Smith was less of a novelty these days, and she won her bids less easily, for there were other steam mills at Woodhall and Cranwell, and an even newer, bigger one in construction at South Ormsby. The world was changing within the giddy scope of one generation, and it wasn't just the wind and water millers who were losing out. Elbowed in with them amid the hot jostle of sticky tables in those bars were hand-weavers, carters, even smithies, 
For all that the Smithies Guild was hand in glove with the financiers who constructed these new machines, it was the high-ups, the pen-pushers, the ones who wore out their fat buttocks by sitting at desks, who made a nice living, and the devil take the old ways and the local village business founded on decent, traditional skills. It was an odd coalition, both alarming and reassuring, and the talk turned yet more furious as the evenings darkened and business suffered and the drink flowed. Plans were hatched, then laughingly dismissed as more beer was bought. But the same complaints returned, and with them came the same sense of angry helplessness. Nathan was never a ringleader, but he and everyone else around those tables soon agreed that there were better ways to spend your time and energy than sitting uselessly in a bar. They were guildsmen, weren't they? They had their pride. Better to go down fighting. Better still to resist wholeheartedly and not go down at all. They met one night at Bennyworth. In the morning the precious furnace which had just been delivered was found transformed into a dented mass of metal, as if by a hailstorm of hammer blows. They met again at Little Cawthorpe, a culvert beneath the embankment of the new railway which would bear coal from Nottingham far quicker than the old canals was blown apart, although the damage was far less than might have been expected, considering the amount of explosive which was used. Lincolnshire earth, as any farmer would have attested, was notoriously slow and sticky stuff to move. Something stronger and better was needed, and Nathan brought it with him the next time they met outside Torrington in an owl-hooting wood. "'What you got there, Miller?' Lamplit faces gathered around him, edging and prodding to get a glimpse of the oddly lumpen knot he held in his hand. "'Something alive, is it? Something that'll make him think twice about stealing the living off decent guildsfolk?' Nathan couldn't bring himself to explain. He merely nodded and felt the glorious lightness of a wind which had come from a point in the east to be found on no compass. These men didn't really expect to understand. Theirs was a loose alliance, and they remained almost as wary of each other's skills and secrets as of those they were campaigning against. They called themselves the men of the future by now, because that was the opposite of what their wives and neighbours shouted after them, and their target was another mound of earth, although this was far bigger than the railway embankment. Steam mills and their associated machinery were even greedier for water than the water mills they had replaced, and a reservoir to supply one such new machine had been recently constructed here in Torrington, taking up good grazing land and creating more aggrieved men. As, shushing each other and stumbling, they came upon it, through the moonless dark, the clay bank looked huge. They laid the several caskets at its base. Then they turned towards Nathan. Whatever that thing is, might as well use it now, Miller. Nathan nodded, although his movements were slow. The wind which twisted in his hand gave off a sharp scent of spring grass. Leaving it in this marshy spot was like destroying a treasured memory. But what else could he do? They scrambled back through the darkness from the hiss and flare of the fuse. A long wait. The thing seemed to go out. A dull crump, a heavy pause. Then came flame and earth in a sour gale, and a white spume of water lit up the dark. The men cheered, but the rumbling continued, shaking the ground beneath their feet. Some were knocked over, and all were splattered by a rain of hot earth and stone. There was more fire than a boiling, roaring wave. They ran, scattered by the power of all the enraged elements which they had unleashed. It was lucky, it was agreed when heads were finally counted as they stood on a nearby rise, that no one had been buried, burned, drowned, or blown away. It looked as if the dam was entirely wrecked. Several fields had certainly been turned into mire. People would have to listen to the men of the future now. It was a long walk home. Drenched, muddied, 
Nathan kept to the edges of the roads, though he scarcely expected to encounter any traffic on a night this black. But then he heard a rumble behind him. He turned and saw what seemed to be a basket of fire approaching. Then he saw it was some kind of wagon, that it was powered by steam. For all his increasing familiarity with such engines, he'd never heard of one which ran along an ordinary road, and curiosity made him reluctant to hide entirely from sight. It rumbled past, big wheels, a big engine. It really did shake the earth. Then it stopped just a few yards past him, spitting and huffing, and a door on its back flung open. "'I'm guessing you're heading the same way as I am, Nathan Westover,' a voice called. "'Why don't you give your feet a rest?' Dazed, Nathan stepped out from the edge of the ditch. He climbed in. "'You look as if you've—' Grand Mistress Smith's eyes travelled over him. "'It's been a hard season.' "'That it has. I'm just back from London from burying my husband. "'We'd grown fond of each other, contrary to how people talk, and he was a decent enough man. "'Neither do I make a habit of picking up men from the roadside on my travels, "'although I hear that's how the tale's told.' "'Nathan had heard no such tales, and his chest was proving difficult "'in the sudden change of air within this hot compartment, "'which was padded with button velvet and lit from some strange source.' The woman who sat opposite was dressed entirely in a shade of black, far deeper than that he remembered she had once worn on her sole visit to his mill. No silks or trimmings. Her hair had dimmed as well. Trails of grey smoked through it. Only the flame in her eyes was unchanged. "'I suppose,' she murmured, "'you think we're deadly foes. "'Isn't that what we are?' She waved a hand. "'Merely competitors, like your fellow millers.' "'And it was never as if fellow millers,' Nathan wheezed. "'He cleared his throat. "'There are a few enough of us.' "'But when you say us, Nathan, why must you exclude me? "'We make the same product. "'I bid for the same grain in the same halls. "'And you and I... "'There's a new science. "'It's called phrenology, "'and it allows you to determine a man's, I mean a person's nature, "'merely from studying the bumps on their head.' I've had it done myself, and mine revealed me to be stubborn and obstinate, often far beyond my own good interests. She attempted a smile. And you? She reached across the carriage. Her fingers brushed his bald scalp. You're an easy subject now, Nathan. One hardly needs to be an expert to understand that you're much the same. And I suppose you remember that offer I made. A steam carriage, which was a clumsy, noisy thing, jolted and jostled. Sharing our skills could still be done. Of course, I have to employ men from all the new guilds to see to the many magics and technicalities of running a steam mill. In all their talk of pressures and recondensing and strange spells, I can barely understand what they mean, even when they're not talking the language of their guilds. Once I could snap my fingers, she did so now. There was no flame. And that mill of yours, the dusty air, Anyone could see what it's doing to you. We could still... She trailed off. The machine rumbled on through the night, splashing through puddles and trailing spark and flame. There's no point, you know, she said eventually as they neared Stagsby. You can't resist things which have already happened. Those men, the ones who give themselves that stupid name and are causing all the damage, they imagine they're playing some game. But it isn't a game. The enforcers, ma'am. That's not what counts... Someone has to put up a fight against steam. The lines deepened around her eyes. You're not fighting steam, Nathan. What you're fighting is time itself. 
More than the grain and the flour, more even than the mill, the winds were Nathan's now. Work or no work, whatever the state of the air and the clouds, they encompassed him in the mill. He talked to him in their lean-to, unhooked them, stroked their bruised and swirling atmospheres, drew them out. As the rest of the world beyond his hilltop went on with whatever business it was now engaged in, Nathan's mill turned, and he turned with it. He laughed and he danced. Strident winds from a dark north bit his flesh and froze his heart. Lacy mare's tails of spring kicked and frisked. His wind swelled around him in booming hisses as he sang out the spell which made them unbind, and they took hold of his and the mill's arms. In that moment of joyous release it seemed to him that he was part of the air as well, and that the horizons had changed. There were glimpses of different Lincolnshires through their prism swell. He saw the counterglow of brighter sunsets, the sheen of different moons. It reminded him of some time, impossible he knew, too ridiculous to recall, when, godlike, he'd looked down on the brightly flowing tapestry of the entire universe which span like some great machine. He saw the ebb and flow of cities, he saw the coming of flame and of ice, and the rise of vast mountains pushing aside the oceans. He saw glass towers and the shining movements of swift machines along shimmering highways of light. He believed he glimpsed heaven itself in the sun-flash of silver wings amid the cloud. The visions faded as the mill took up the strain of the wind, but they never left him entirely. They and the winds returned to him as he lay on his bunk and snatched at flying fragments of impossible sleep. They came to him more quietly then, not with a scream and a screech and a growl, but with a murmur of forests, a sigh of deserts, a sparkle of waves, a soft frew of skirts. They breathed over him, and he breathed with them, and he let them lift him in their fragrant arms. In and out of his dreams, Nathan laughed and danced. For all the many winds which he'd bought from the wind cellar on his last visit, Nathan knew he'd been less than frugal in their use. Sometimes, on the days of hard sky and mirage earth, he'd look out for that characteristic silhouette climbing up the little-used path from the valley, but the man never came, and part of Nathan already knew that he never would, not because of the indiscreet questions he'd asked, nor for the money he now couldn't afford to give him, but because the man's trade was like that of the millers themselves, and was thus in decline. Why, Nathan had even heard it said that sailors, who were surely the other main market for the produce of the Windsellers' Guild, were now installing clever and brassy devices on the decks of their ships, which could summon a wind to fill the sails when there was no wind at all. Partly that sounded like the blurry talk of smoky barrooms, but that, as far as Nathan could see, was how so much of the world had become. He still looked out for the wind cellar on those sour days of bad air which seemed to come all too frequently now, but he knew in his heart that a figure would never shape itself out of the smoke and haze of the valley below. Those last purchases, this marvellous glut, had been like the rush of flour in the chutes when the hoppers were nearly empty. Soon all that would be left was dust. Nathan hoarded his last winds as a starving man hoards his withering supplies. He toyed with them in his mind, carried them about with him, inspected them, sniffed them, sang to them, got the tang of their currents in his mouth. Still the moment of their release had to come, and it was all over too quickly. And just how were they made? Where were they from? The question might now seem immaterial, but it wouldn't let Nathan go. He studied the knots ever more carefully, not only for their feel and bluster, but also the exact nature of their bond. Of course he'd always known how to undo them, that came to him as easily as winching a sack of grain, but their tying was something else. 
His fingers traced the long, wavering pattern, which he realised was always the same, no matter what the substance was from which the knot was formed. He followed the kinks which were left in the exhausted scraps once the wind had gone. With so few left, and the wind cellar so absent, it even seemed worth trying to see if he couldn't capture a few small winds himself. Small they were. He was sure that something vital was lacking, even if, as the wind cellar himself had once seemed to say to him, that something had already been bled from the very ground. Still, and guilty though he felt, Nathan would sometimes desert his mill for a few hours to gather grasses, or wander the hedgerows of the landscapes below in search of strands of sheep's wool, deer pelt, casings of snakeskin, anything, in fact, which could reasonably be knotted, and through which winds might once have blown. The knots strained his fingers. They hurt at his heart. They blurred before his eyes. Yet whatever it was which once might have been trapped within them wasn't entirely lost, for when he undid them they would let out a sigh, the breath of a lost season's air. Never sufficient to drive anything as big as his mill, but enough to bring an ease to his breathing on the most difficult nights when his lungs seemed to close up inside him, and to add some flair and spectacle to the conflagrations wrought by the men of the future. Although the wind-cellar never came, Burlish Mill had other visitors now. Men with canes and women with extravagant hats, born almost all the way to Stagsby from the Midland cities, first class, would climb Burlish Hill on summer afternoons and smilingly ask what exactly the cost was for a guided tour. He was slightly less brusque with the painter who lumbered all the way up the slope with his boxes, canvases and easel, but all his talk of setting down for posterity was off-putting, and Nathan sent him back down as well. Dismissed, too, was the man who lumbered up with a wooden box, set with a staring glass eye, within which, bizarrely, he claimed he could trap and frame light itself. His trips to Donna Nook had grown less regular, and the last occasion he chose to see his mother was the sort of bitter, windy winter's day when he'd have spilled the hoppers with the sacks of grist he knew his mill longed for, had he any left. After the confinement of the train, he'd hoped that the air along the coast would make his breathing easier, but he felt as if he was fighting some new, alien substance as he hunched towards the old hop warehouse, which now had sand sliding in through its lower windows. His mother wasn't up in her little room, and the fire was out. Stumbling, wandering, he finally found her, hunched and gazing seaward from the crest of a dune. Her body was dusted, as if by a coating of the finest and lightest of flowers, with a layer of frost. Now the nights when he did the work of the men of the future were his only escape from the needs of the mill. More and more he came to think of the world beyond Burlish Hill as a dark and moonless place, erupting with hot iron and black mountains of clinker and coal. The men of the future had grown better organised, and the targets of their visitations were kept secret from all but a select inner group to which Nathan had no desire to belong. He was happy, although he knew that happy wasn't really the word, simply to meet in some scrap of wood or heath, and take the long, silent march towards another citadel of smoke and fire. There were so many of them now, and with so many purposes, not just weaving and milling, but threshing, road-making and metal-beating, so many new technologies and spells. Sawmills were powered by steam, printing presses even, and with each threatened trade came a swelling of their ranks. Pale, slim-faced men from far towns, workers with skills which Nathan couldn't even guess at, were taking charge, and they knew far better than their country colleagues how best to destroy a steam-driven machine. It wasn't about sledgehammers or pickaxes, or even explosives. 
Such brutal treatments were time-consuming, inefficient, and loud. Far better, they murmured in their slurring accents, to use the powers and magics of the devices themselves. Nathan could appreciate the cunning of setting a millstone turning so its two faces tore and clashed themselves apart. Could see as well how clever it was to put lime in a cold furnace or molasses in a water vat, although some of the more arcane skills which these men then started to use, the muttering of short phrases, the leaving of scrolls of symbols, which caused machines and furnaces to break apart when they were restarted, seemed too close to mimicking the work of the new steam guilds themselves. But something had to be done, and they were doing it, and these new men of the future continued to encourage the use of the small winds Nathan brought himself. Not that they were essential, he understood, to the work in hand, but their ghostly torrents, which lit up these damnable mills and factories with strange, fresh atmospheres, had become something of a signature of their work across Lincolnshire. The nights when they met were never ordinary. There was always a similar mix of fear and hopeful excitement. They were, Nathan sometimes reflected, like midnight versions of the summer trips which families from the city took on the railways to the lakes, the hills and the coast. Some men of the future even caught the last day's train to get to their next meeting place, then the morning's milk run to head back home again, and here they all were tonight, gathered once again in some typically remote spot, although the distance of the travel had been much shorter than usual for Nathan. He even knew the farm on whose land they were now standing. He'd once been a good source of trade. Faces down, backs hunched, the men of the future shuffled towards their target in wary silence. As ever, the night was moonlessly dark, but to Nathan these were familiar roads. He didn't count himself a fool, and had long anticipated the night when they would head towards Stagsby. A year or two before, he'd have probably left them to get on with their work and return to his mill, or perhaps even tried to persuade them to wreck a different machine. Not now. When he was heading home through a grey dawn after one conflagration, a passing grain merchant had halted the hairless beast drawing his wagon to ask the way to Stagsby Mill. Nathan knew from the scent of the sacks alone that here were several days' work of good barley, and offered the man an uncharacteristically cheery good morning. The merchant stopped him short when he began his directions. He was looking, of course, for the steam mill down in the valley, not that other thing. Just a relic, wasn't it? Upon the hill. Burlish Hill was nothing more than a presence in the darkness as the men of the future passed through the village where no murmurs were made, no lights were shown. Then came a faint gleam of iron as they met the closed gates of Stagsby Mill. But just as Nathan had witnessed before, one of the thin-faced men at the head of their profession murmured cooingly to the metal, and the metal wilted, and the gates swung open. There was no lawn, no trees, only bricks and mud now at Stagsby Hall. But Nathan, as he turned and blundered into the men around him, couldn't help remembering, couldn't help trying to look. This was the most dangerous time of their work. One night there would surely be man-traps, men with guns, regiments of enforcers, or those poisonously fanged beasts like giant dogs, which were called bale-hounds. Indeed, many of the men of the future, especially those of the old kind, would have relished a fight, and there was a brief flurry when the eyes of some living beast were sighted in the pool of dark. Then came suppressed laughter, the glint of smiles, nothing more than a donkey, old and mangy, tethered to an iron hoop. Once again their secrecy seemed to have held. The men of the future reached the doors of the machine itself, which gave as easily as had every other barrier. Inside there was a warmth and a gleam to the dark. The furnace was still murmuring, kept banked up with enough coal to see it through to the next morning without the need to relight. 
there was a living heat, too, in the pipes which Nathan's hands touched. He'd been in enough of such buildings by now for some aspects to seem less strange, but this one, especially when the doors of the furnace were thrown open and the light gushed out, stirred deeper thoughts. After all, grain was ground here. Although this place was alien to him, aspects of it, the strew of sacks, the smell of half-fermented husks, the barrels of water with their long-handled scoops for damping down, were entirely... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Highly familiar. But there was something else as well. Nathan sniffed and touched. He was so absorbed in whatever he was thinking that he crashed his head on a beam and let out a surprised shout. Faces glared. Voices shushed him. Rubbing his bare forehead, he realised what it was. This place was cramped, awkward and messy compared to some of the machines they'd recently targeted. After all, Stagsby Mill had been working down this valley for almost twenty years and was getting old. He watched as the thin men set to their work, quietly shoveling the coal into the furnace, soaking up its heat, while others of their ilk smirkingly tended to the taps and levers which controlled pressure and heat murmuring their own secret spells. The heat grew more solid. New energies began to infuse the bricks and irons of the engine house. The main rocker let out a protracted groan. A hiss, a gesture of quick hands, and Nathan was summoned towards the glare of the furnace. The wind which he held in his hands was one of his own best gatherings. Just a few looped wisps of seed-headed grass, but it felt soft and sharp as summer sunlight, and he felt sad to release it, much though he knew it had to be done. Teeth of flame gnashed as he tossed it into the glowing mouth. The furnace gave a deep roar. Coughing and gasping, he was shoved back. The men of the future were in a rush now, but eager and excited as they bustled out. Back in the safety of the cool darkness, they turned and looked, shading their eyes from the open engine-house doors gathering blaze. There were jeers and moans of disappointment when a shadow blocked the space ahead. Some idiot was standing too close and spoiling the show. Martin? Arthur? Josh? A woman's voice, of all things, although none of them recognised the name she called. 
When she called them again, and added a few others, along with some hells and goddammits for good measure, it became apparent she hadn't expected to find herself alone. There was derisory laughter. So much for the hired thugs and the bailhounds, although, as Grand Mistress Fiona Smith stepped across the puddled mud towards the gaggle of men who hung back in the deeper darkness, it became apparent she was holding a gun. "'You're trespassing. I warn you, I'll use this thing.' The gun was hefted, although it was plainly an old device. "'This isn't just filled with swan-shot.' The laughter grew louder. All this was simply adding to the show. The mistress glanced back when the sudden light appeared from every aperture of the building behind her. "'What exactly have you done to my—' Then the entire engine-house exploded. Nathan ran, fighting his way through the searing air, the falling bricks and earth. The blaze was incredible. It was like battling against the sun. A figure lay ahead of him, although it shifted and shimmered in a wild dance of flame and smoke. He grabbed it, drew it up, hauling it and himself across the burning earth which seemed to be turning endlessly against him, until, finally, he sensed some diminution of the incredible heat. Coughing, gasping, he laid Fiona Smith down on the rubble and the mud beside what had once been the lake of Stagsby Hall. The water was scummed now, licked into rainbow colours by the leaping flames at his back, but he fumblingly attempted to scoop some of it over her blackened and embered flesh before he saw that it was already too late. Little flamelets and puffs of smoke played over Fiona Smith's charred body, but the fire was leaving her eyes. He leaned close, hands moving amid the glowing remnants of her hair, and in that last flicker of her gaze there came what might have been a twinge of recognition, then a final gasping shudder of what felt like release, relief. Nathan's fingers still twined. Looking down, he saw that they had unconsciously drawn a knot in the last unsinged twist of Fiona Smith's glorious red hair. The climb uphill had never been harder. His own flesh was burned, his lungs were clogged and charred with flame and soot. As he finally reached, half-crawled across the summit, he realised this was the first time he'd ever ascended Burlish Hill without sensing the moods of its air. Now that he did, hauling himself up and looking around at a world which, but for the fire which still blazed in the valley, lay dark at every point of the compass, he realised that there wasn't a single breath of wind, not, at least, apart from whatever was contained within the last knot of hair he cut loose with a glowing claw of metal and which his fingers now held crabbed in his pocket and was far too precious to be released. Nathan coughed. With what little breath he had, he tried to call out to his mill. The sound was nothing a mere whisper of dead leaves from some long-lost autumn, impossible that this vast machine should respond to anything so puny, but, somehow, groaningly, massively, yet joyful as ever, it did. The sails began to turn. In a way, Nathan had always believed that the winds came as much from the mill itself as they did from the sky-arched landscape, but he'd never witnessed it happen so clearly as it did on that night. Invisibly, far beyond the moon and the stars, clouds uncoiled, horizons opened, and, easy as breathing, easy as dancing, sleeping, and far easier than falling in love, the keen easterly wind, which most often prevailed across Burlish Hill, but which was never the same moment by moment, began to blow. There wasn't a trace of grain in need of grinding, but Nathan still attended to his mill. He released its shackles of winch, brake, and pulley to set it turning wildly until all the mechanisms which he'd known and sung to for his entire life became a hot, spinning blur. The sound which the mill made was incredible. It felt as if it was singing every spell in every voice which had ever sang it. 
he heard his father there, within that deep, many-throated rumble, calling to his mill in the strong, clear tones which he'd once possessed, and humming as he worked, and sometimes laughing as he laboured for the sheer joy of his work. And the softer tones of his mother and all the other mistress millers was there as well. See, Nathan, how it sits, and how that band of metal keeps it in place. Now it's getting near the end of its life. Nathan Westover heard the sound of that stuttering pulley, and then of his own unbroken voice, which had caused the turning to mend. All the winds of this, and every other earth side with him, and the mill's sails swooped, and the world revolved, and the sky unravelled, and the stars and the planets spun round in dizzy blurs, and the seasons came and went. He saw Fiona Smith, young as she was then, puffing out her cheeks before that huge cake at Stagsby Hall, when the place had still possessed lawns and its oaks were unfelled. Saw her again at this very mill. I have a proposal to put to you, Nathan. Saw her as she was at the grain auctions, with the light from the tall windows flaming on her red hair, then sitting in that bizarre machine which rumbled across the countryside when that same hair was twined with smoke trails of grey. Saw all of these things, but felt, above all, the warm, soft pressures of her body in those few glorious moments when he had once held her on this very millstone floor, and the hot, amazing reality of the taste of her lips and mouth against his own. The mill roared, and Nathan roared with it. Axles smoked, joints screamed, cogs flew, and then as something final sagged and broke, the top face of the millstone itself bore hugely down on its lower half, screaming in a brilliant cascade of sparks. That memorable night the villagers of Stagsby were already swirling like ants around what was left of the steam mill, when they looked up and saw that the windmill up on Burlish Hill was also burning. Amid the chaos, a ragged line was established to pass, hand by hand, slow bucket by bucket, what little was left of the waters of the lake. But the distance was too far, and the mill was already massively ablaze, its flaming sails turning against the night in what seemed to be no wind at all. The heat soon grew far too ferocious to approach, though many stood back to watch such was the terrible, beautiful sight it made, like some great mythic bird. Afterwards there were many rumours. Most popular in Stagsby itself was that the steam mill had long been in decline, and that the Grand Mistress had been purposefully engineering its destruction to claim on the insurance when she had been caught out by the suddenness of the blast. Also popular, especially amongst those who had little idea of what insurance was, was that she'd been doing some extra overtime with one of her workers, if you get the meaning, when things had got, well, just a little too hot. And as for the old windmill, most likely had been caught by a spark thrown up by the blaze, and everyone knew that the place was half-ruined anyway, and doubtless tinder dry. All assumed, for want of any other sightings, that the miller himself had died inside his mill. The perfunctory official investigations gave people little reason to vary their views. The other theory, which was that the wealthy owners of the latest self-condensing machines had used the so-called men of the future as a means of destroying competition, received little credence, and then only amongst those who were in their cups. Soon, as the wind lifted the ash and bore it westward, and the rain dissolved the charred wood and the grass regrew, nothing but a circle of stone was left on Burlish Hill nor was the steam mill down in the valley ever reconstructed. Farmers now sold their harvest on wholesale contract to the big new factories, thus giving up their financial independence for what seemed, for a while, to be a good enough price. Stagsby Hall was acquired by one of the leading families of the steam guilds as a country retreat. Soon its lawns were re-established, the lake was dredged and gleamingly refilled, 
the interiors were extravagantly refurbished in the latest style. The ruins of the steam mill were shored up and prettified with vines and shaggy moss. Five years on, and they could have been a bit of an old castle, a relic from an entirely different age. But much of this was hearsay. To judge by all the chuffing, huffing modern carriages which came and went that way through the village, parties were frequently held at Stagsby Hall, but they weren't of the sort to which anyone local would ever be invited. You really had to climb up to the top of Burlish Hill to get any real sense of how fine the big house looked now. From up there you could still watch the clouds chase their reflections across the lake and see the sun flash of its windows and breathe the shimmer of its trees, but few ever did, apart from stray couples seeking solitude. For what, otherwise, would be the point? Weevils, woodworm, fire and rats are the four apocalyptic demons in a miller's life, and of these, fire is the worst. But, Nathan reflected, burned and breathless, as he looked back at the river of flame which steamed westward from Burlish Hill, there were worse things still. At least, he told himself as he walked on, he hadn't left his mill, for there was nothing left to leave. Following no particular direction, he kept walking until morning, and came across a railway station which he dimly recognised from his journeys as a man of the future. He sat and waited there, and took the first train, which bore him all the way to the coast. It was a bright day. Even this early in the summer season, families were camped out on the beach behind coloured windbreaks. Laughing children were bathing in the ocean's freezing shallows, or holding the tethers of snapping kites. Nathan watched, and felt the bite of the salt against his face, happy to see that the world still turned, and the wind still blew, whether or not there was a mill on Burlish Hill. The rails went everywhere now. They took you places it was hard to imagine had ever existed before the parallels of iron had found them. Even when the timetables ran out, and he discovered himself sitting on an empty platform at the time when he knew no train would be coming, their shining river still seemed ready to bear him on. He travelled, he journeyed, he leaned out of carriage windows and looked ahead into the fiery smoking sunset and licked the salt smuts from his lips. Had he the breath left within him, he might have sang to the teeming air. Another summer was coming, and the fields were ripening across the wide and heavy land. He sat on the steps beside the bridge of a riverside town, where a mother and her daughter were feeding the crusts of their sandwiches to the geese and swans. They were both red-haired. Nathan's fingers bunched the knotted lock he still kept in his pocket. He often longed to release it, and to feel the special giving of a final windspell. But he remembered the look in the last embers of Fiona's eyes, and wondered what he truly had trapped there and what, if released, he might be letting go. North and south, he travelled on through the many nights, and the landscapes which lay around him in the darkness were stitched in flame. Dawn brought rooftops, chimneys on every horizon, swallowed in giant buildings, spat out with the litter and the pigeons onto surging streets, he gawped and wandered. He was cursed, bumped into. Leering offers were made in return for money he no longer had. The sky was solidly grey here, and the airs which rushed up to greet him from the chasms of streets were disgustingly scented. This was a place without seasons, or with seasons which were entirely its own. Nathan had grown accustomed to the tides or delays of departures at stations, but here he was lost. He wandered the darkening city, taking turns as he sought out some direction which was neither north nor south, east nor west. Far behind him the girders of some vast structure were being erected, their black lines gridding the sky, but there were less people here, and those who were became furtive in their glances, or ran away at the sight of him with screams and clatters of clogs. 
not a place to be, he thought, for anyone who doesn't have business here. But more and more he felt that he did. He almost ran, and the bricks rushed by him, whispering with the echo of his dried-out lungs. Whispered as well with the glow of all the spells and talismans which were scrawled across them. Some, he was almost sure, belonged to his own guild. Others, he thought, had the taint of the sea about them. And here were the symbols of men who tended the tallest roofs, and all the other guilds who worked in high places and breathed the changing airs as they looked down on a different world. Wheezing, exhausted, light-headed, he stumbled on. There were gates and walkways. The hidden thrumming of vast machineries ground up through the earth. Dawn, though, brought a different kind of landscape. He was tired beyond exhaustion, and it amazed him that his feet dragged on, that his heart still stuttered, that his lungs raked in some sustenance. But the city had cast itself far behind him, so far that the shifting horizons had smeared it entirely out of memory and existence. Here, puddled and rutted lanes unwound and divided to the lean of empty signposts, bounded by endless hedgerows, fences, gates, railings, snags of string and wire and thorn. And the wind blew everywhere, and from all directions, and the world fluttered with the litter of what seemed like the aftermath of some archetypal storm. Hats and scarves, stray shoes, newspapers, the pages of books, umbrellas, whole lines of washing, the weathered flags of guilds, even the torn sails of ships, fluttered everywhere, or were snatched to tumble in the sky like wild kites. Nathan's fingers bunched once more around the knot of Fiona Smith's hair. Here, if anywhere, was the secret of how she might be released. He understood now what all his wanderings had been about, which was to get here, wherever here was, and to find the spell, the secret, which might unlock that last knot. But he was tired. He was tired beyond believing. Walking, he decided, as he leaned against another blank signpost, was an activity he might still just about be able to manage, but he wasn't so sure about breathing, nor sustaining the increasingly weary thud of his heart. But still he pushed on, and the winds as they came from every and no direction pushed with him, tearing at his clothing, afflicting him with hot and cold tremors, spiralling around him in moans and whoops. Then he heard another sound. It was a kind of screaming. Although he now had no idea what it was, it drew him on. Another fence, its slats torn, flapping and rotting, and another gate, which turned itself closed and then open in the wind, although that wasn't where the screaming came from. Nathan had to smile. It was simply an old weathercock, fixed to a signpost, and turning madly, happily, this way and that in the wind. So familiar, though he'd never stood this close. The one thing about it, he realised as it screamed and turned on its ancient bearings, was that the four angles of the compass, which usually projected beneath such devices, were entirely absent, even as rusty stubs. Then the gate reopened, and the weathercock screamed and shifted in directions which lay beyond any compass, and the wind also turned, pushing him along the path which lay beyond. There was a house. Though its windows flapped and its slates and chimneys were in disorder, there was also a garden of sorts. That blurry sense which he'd felt all morning was even stronger here, there were trees which in one moment seemed to be in blossom, but the next were green, then brown, then gold, then torn to the black bones of their branches in sudden flurries of storm. Roses untwined their red lips and then withered. This was a place of many seasons, Nathan reflected as he gasped his way on, although it belonged more to winter than it did to summer, and more to autumn than to spring. As much as anything... The hunched figure which lay ahead seemed to be shaped out of the ever-changing territories of the air. 
not just windy days, or the sudden bluster of summer thunderstorms, but also the hot stillness of afternoons which seemed to be without prospect of any wind at all, at least until you saw something separate itself from the grey shimmer of the world below. The wind-seller had his sack laid open beside him. He was gathering the tumbled sticks of a nearby willow which shivered and danced its wild arms. Somewhere inside Nathan's head that weathercock was still screaming, and with it came a sobbing agony in his lungs. He knew he didn't have the strength left to tell the wind-seller what he wanted, and it was a release and a relief to him when the man simply held out his pale fingers, which looked like stripped willow themselves, and took from him that glorious red tress. As Nathan Westover stumbled and fell into the puddled mud, he saw the wind-seller's hands working, not to release Fiona Smith's last breath, but looping her hair again to draw another final knot. <laughs> I can't help but feel sorry for these characters. And I personally will never feel a breeze on my face the same way again. And now let's move on to our second story. It's called Show Me Yours by Robert Reed. Robert was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and is a Hugo Award-winning science fiction author. This extraordinarily prolific genre short fiction writer has a Bachelor of Science in Biology, and his work regularly appears in Asimov's fantasy and science fiction, and sci-fiction. He has also published 11 novels. Mr. Reed lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, with his wife and daughter. It's read for us by Nicole Doolin. Nicole writes fiction, poetry, and plays. Her work has appeared in the Wilderness House Literary Review, Tales to Terrify, 3AM Magazine, 365 Tomorrows, Flashshot, and the literary anthology Wilderness House Literary Review the best of Volume 3. Nicole is also a voice actor who has performed for various mediums. She produces a podcast called Audio Literature Odyssey in which she narrates classic literature by the likes of Austen, Poe, James and more. Furthermore, Nicole has performed contemporary narrations for Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, The No Sleep Podcast and now Far-Fetched Fables. And so, here it is. She wears a black felt robe long enough to cover her bare knees and pale pink socks pulled over her ankles. Her calves are white and freshly shaved, and her shins are even whiter and nicked in two places by razor blades. A red belt is cinched tight, making her waist appear narrow and her hips broad. She isn't a tall woman. By most measures, she is slender, though the body has a roundness that marks five stubborn pounds, pounds sure to grow over time. She isn't lovely in the traditional ways, but youth and a good complexion help. Her fine black hair is long enough to kiss her shoulders. Her eyes appear dark and exceptionally large. On stocking feet she stands in the middle of a long hallway, her head tilted forward, while her mouth opens and closes, and again opens. The door to her left, the door she came out of, is slightly ajar. She pulls it shut now, applying pressure until the old latch catches with a sudden sharp click. Then she stares at the opposite door, drifting closer to it, listening. The loudest sound in the world is her soft, slow breathing, but then some little noise catches her attention, and on tiptoes, she glides down to the end of the hallway, into the only room in the apartment where a light still burns. Metal moves, and the second door pops open, 
At that moment, the young woman is sitting on a hard chair, her back to the kitchen table. She watches a young man step out into the hallway. He wears jeans and nothing else, and judging by his manner, he wants something. He examines the door she just closed, then drifts a few steps to his left, finding nothing but the darkened living room. That most definitely is not what he needs, though he finally turns in her direction and notices her sitting alone in the kitchen, sitting with her legs crossed, illuminated from behind by the weak bulb above the sink. Good John, he whispers. She nods and tilts her head. The bathroom is beside the kitchen. He starts to fumble for the switch, closing the door all but the last little bit before clicking the light on. The girl doesn't move, except to scratch the back of an ear, and then drop the same finger down the front of her neck, tugging at the warmth of the old black felt. That slight pressure pulls open the robe enough to expose the tops of her breasts. While she waits, a seemingly endless stream of urine echoes inside the toilet bowl. Then comes the hard flush and the light goes off, and the man steps back into the hallway. He already wears a big smile, as if he spent his time in the bathroom rehearsing this moment. So, you're the roommate, he says. She says, hi. He steps into the kitchen, stops. Did we wake you? No. Good, he says. She leans against the hard back of the chair, her chest lifting. No, you didn't wake me. Her voice is deep for a woman and pleasantly rough. Then she shows him a half wink, asking, what do you think? He almost laughs. Think about what? She doesn't answer. He takes another little step forward. About my roommate, she says. What do you think? The man scratches his bare navel and then his sternum, smiling as he phrases his response. Sweet. My roommate is? Again, he says, sweet. Which makes her laugh and she stands up now and runs one hand through her black hair and flips her head twice and says, You aren't. I'm not what? You know what I mean, she says. He is barefoot and shirtless and maybe in his middle twenties, a fit, strong young man with pale hair and abdominal muscles and jeans that could be tighter but not much so. I'm not what? he asks again. Fooling me, she says. No? Not at all. He shakes his head. I didn't know I was trying to. She says nothing. He gestures over his shoulder. She's sleeping. Is she? He doesn't answer. Sleep is good, she allows. He watches her face, her body. Again, she uses her index finger, touching herself beneath her pale neck before pulling down slowly dividing the robe until the inner faces of her breast show in that gloomy yellow light. She is well-built and naked under the robe, and her smile is girlish and warm, and her deep, rough voice says, Show me yours and I'll show you mine. The young man takes a deep breath and holds it. No, she asks. Maybe, he says. Maybe is the same as no, she says. If you think about it. How's that? Because every no is just a maybe. It's attached to something you haven't gotten around to doing yet. Okay, he says. She waits. He puts a hand to his mouth for an instant. Are you going to show me? She asks. Why not? Okay, then. 
With both hands, he unbuttons his jeans and unzips them, and opens them until he is thoroughly exposed. She studies nothing but his face. Now you, he mutters. Very quickly, she pulls open the robe and then closes it again, in a blur, her face not quite smiling while she does it. The young man blinks for a moment, as if trying to decide what he saw. Then he yanks up his pants and zips them. Do you hear her? she asks. He doesn't look back. He doesn't even blink now, watching her, with his face changing, smiling but with a grim, determined quality about the mouth and eyes. He says, No, I don't hear anything. Nothing at all. Just the same, he puts a finger to his mouth and turns abruptly, slipping back into the roommate's bedroom. She waits now, counting to five. Then on tiptoe, she moves back down the hallway, balancing speed with stealth. The house is old and a floorboard groans, but not too loudly. The door has been closed, but not quite latched. She hears someone moving. A light shows beneath the door. Somebody says a few soft words. The young man asks a question, judging by the tone. But no answer comes. Standing with her head tilted forward, the girl breathes through her nose. Big eyes dancing and her mouth pressed tiny as her right hand turns the old glass knob, lifting the workings until she can push at the door without making much noise. The young man stands beside a narrow bed, a woman's bed with a headboard made of iron and a flowery bedspread pulled against the wall and embroidered pillows stacked haphazardly on the floor. With considerable care, he holds a long bare foot in the crook of one arm. With a fingertip, he brushes at the foot's sole, working to elicit a reflexive flinch. Nothing happens. The woman on the bed is naked, lying on her stomach, her face turned toward the watching girl. Like the door, her eyes are just a little open, but nothing seems to register in her mind. When the man drops the foot, the bare leg collapses. When he slides his hand over her rump and between her legs, she doesn't react. And when he fishes a lighter out of a back pocket and makes a tall flame and holds it close to the dreamy, drugged eyes, she does nothing to show that she sees anything at all. Satisfied, he straightens and reaches for the lamp. The girl in the black robe backs away from the door as the light goes out. Then she moves to the opposite end of the brief hallway, into the darkened living room sitting on an old upholstered chair. She breathes hard now, even when she only sits. Nearly a minute passes. Her dimly lit face is a little wet with perspiration, and her mouth is open, gulping at the air. When the man appears, she says nothing. She watches him return to the kitchen, watches him look around for a moment before glancing into the open bathroom. Has she slipped out of the apartment? He must be asking himself that question. Then he decides to investigate the other bedroom, giving the wooden door a little rap before putting his hand on the knob. Here, she calls out. He jumps, just slightly. Then he steps into the living room, his face obscured by shadow, but something in his posture implying a large, consuming smile. Quietly, he says, Hey. What are you thinking? She asks. He shakes his head, laughing softly. Guess. What's funny? You. She says nothing. Your roommate. She told me you don't like men that much. She said that? Just now, he lies. Some men are nice, she says. On the right occasion, I might. Really? She crosses her pink socks. 
Hey, he says. Want a drink? Maybe. What do you have? Whatever you find, she says. He acts satisfied, even smug. With a quick walk, he returns to the kitchen. A new light comes on when he opens the refrigerator. And there is the musical clink of bottles and the whoosh of seals being broken. Then comes a pause, and he returns with the two beers held in one hand. One bottle is foaming slightly, while his free hand pushes into the front pocket of his jeans. She breathes deeply and says, Thanks, as she takes the foamy beer. No problem. She sets the beer on the old carpet between her pink sock. If you want, she says. Turn on a light. He fumbles with the floor lamp until the switch clicks once, the bulb glowing at its weakest setting. And then he looks at her for a long moment before saying, Let's do that game again. Show me yours. Yeah. She nods but then says, I don't know. She picks up her beer and takes a long drink. Maybe later. Maybe it's the same thing as no. Is that right? Good job, she replies. Got any other lessons for me? If you want to hear them. He settles on the nearest chair, on its edge, staring at her robe and the pale razor-neck legs. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, there's no such word as sure. Grinning at the floor between them, she says, Nothing is ever sure, or certain, or guaranteed. Never? Not in my experience. She reports, taking another long sip of the beer. You can never know the full consequences of anything you do. Not before you do it. And most of the time, not even afterwards. The young man leans back in his chair, smiling at everything. Suppose it's fifty years from tonight, she says. Oh, yeah. Imagine you're an old man looking back. What do you see? Fifty years later, and if you had to describe the consequences of your actions. If you had to explain your life to others, how would you do it? Know what? He says. You're just a little bit weird. She doesn't respond. Not that weird is a bad thing. He drinks part of his beer. I don't know. I guess I'd say, in my life, everybody had some fun. Fun? She takes a last long drink and sets the bottle out of the way. Is that what you call it? He shrugs, laughs. Fifty years. She repeats, it's going to be a different world, full of changes, rich with possibilities. I think you'd agree to that, right? I suppose. And you'll have led this long life where you said, yeah, sure, to every women desire that came into your head, which is how a sociopath exists. But I bet that doesn't bother you, does it? Hearing yourself referred to as a sociopath. And you'd probably never notice the worst consequences of your actions. The misery. The waste. The plain ugliness that you leave in your wake. The young man closes his mouth and stares. After a moment, he asks, Aren't you getting sleepy? Should I be? He glances at her half-finished beer. 
Half a century, she says. If you think about it, you can appreciate that there's going to be a wealth of new pills available, more powerful than any barbiturate, and infinitely more imaginative in their effects. He squirms in his chair. Believe me, there are some amazing pharmaceutical products in that world. Pills that will make a person believe anything, feel anything, do anything, practically. She sits back, smiling with keen pleasure. If a person were sufficiently clever, she could feed an old man a series of potent medications, and he would suddenly believe that he was young again, sitting inside an apartment that he hasn't visited for years, a young stallion enjoying an evening with two trusting, unfortunate women. A tight, fearful voice asks, Who are you? The roommate, she replies. I had been drinking that night, and when you came out of her room, we played our little game of show me. Then you slipped a mickey in my beer, and I fell asleep in this chair, and I woke up the next day in my bed with a miserable headache. The man kicks with his legs, flails with his arms, but he doesn't possess the simple coordination to lift up off the chair. My friend, the first girl you drugged, she eventually killed herself, you know. Three years later, with an entire bottle of pills. In an instant, the woman has become a seventy-year-old, a little heavy and shamelessly gray, staring down the hallway as if waiting for a door to open. Maybe you weren't directly responsible for her death. I'll give you that much. Maybe she would have killed herself anyway. But I'll tell you this. I find it hard to believe that you made the life she had left any better. He isn't young anymore. Speckled hands hang in front of his eyes. Then he covers a still handsome face. So you slipped me something, he mutters. So what are you going to do? Have your fun with me? Is that it? But I already have, she says. Then she stands and with a calm, slow voice explains, Your body will carry you to one of two places now. You can return to her bedroom if you want. You'll find her dead body waiting there. She'll look exactly as she did when I found her. And if you go in there, you'll never wake up. You'll live out your days in a deep coma, and the only thing inside your head will be that room and a cold, pale corpse. Or you can step into my room, which would be much, much worse. He drops his hands. How? All of your victims, the ones I could find who were still alive, they're waiting behind my door. Silver-haired ladies and young girls, faces you'll know very well, and faces you probably won't even remember. He glares at her. It's your choice, she tells him, walking slowly toward the hallway. What'll they do to me? He squeaks. She pauses. For a long moment, she stands on her tiptoes letting a wide, rich smile spread across her face. Then she pulls her red belt snug, and with genuine delight she says, What will they do? I don't think they know. Really, this will be the first time they've ever played the game. Ah, sweet revenge. This one made me smile a bit, dark as it was. Thanks, Mr. Reed.
And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing or selling it. And I don't normally make a big deal about donations, but the District of Wonders is in need of a bit of help right now, so any donations you're able to make would be very much appreciated. All of us here at the DOW are working free of charge, but there are hosting costs and equipment costs to be covered, and unfortunately, we can't trade them good stories. Buttons are on the website. Please pop over and give us a little something. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy, keep smiling, and enjoy your beverage, whatever it is. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 